All right. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to the book of 2 Samuel. We have made it through 1 Samuel, and we're in the book of 2 Samuel. We've actually, if you think about it, we've really gone through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, 1 Samuel, and now we're in 2 Samuel. Um, So we... uh, as, as we've talked about last week, we, coming to the end of 1 Samuel, we saw it comes to a really tragic ending where Saul and his sons, at least some of his sons, die on the battlefield all on the same day. And the Philistines, as they comb through the field, the, the, the Jews flee the battlefield, they leave, and the Philistines take possession of the place where the Jews were. And they comb through the fields on the next day and they find the bodies of Saul and Jonathan and his sons and they pick them up and they take them to Bet Shean and they pin the body of Saul to the wall there, Saul and Jonathan both. And they take Saul's armor, the king's armor, and they put it in the temple uh, of their their god, uh, Ashtaroth, and and raise it up, uh, you know, for all to see so that anyone that enters the temple will know who the God is that's the best, so to speak. And, um, and so they make a mockery, an open mockery of Saul, the king of Israel there, or the former king of Israel. Um, so Saul has died and on the battlefield, and that closes the book of 1 Samuel. And the book of 2 Samuel opens the way 1 Samuel be- ended. And so you, 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 the, the reason for that is because really it's just one book, Samuel, and the English Bible's divided into two books, First and Second Samuel, but it, it's really one, one book, the book of Samuel. And so uh, the section ends, First Samuel ends, and with the account of the death of King Saul and his son Jonathan, and then uh, there, so there is great lamenting and, and sadness as the book closes. Um, but while First Samuel 31 describes the events as they actually occurred, Second Samuel 1, 1 to 16 is a report from a lying Amalekite. Now, I don't know if you know if you've ever met an Amalekite before. Um, Maybe you have, maybe you haven't, uh, but the uh, Amalekites lie, and uh, they're, they're, they're liars. So if you ever do meet a Malachite, don't trust him, all right? That's kind of the moral of the story. But uh, <laughs> this Amalekite comes along and is going to tell a story. Now, when you read the story of the Amalekite in 2 Samuel 1, 1 to 16, you walk away very confused because the Amalekite tells a twisted account of what happened on the battlefield and you're left going, wait a minute. The author of 1 Samuel Samuel 31 leads me to believe Saul committed suicide. And then here's an Amalekite telling a story, Saul didn't commit suicide, I killed him. When you have a choice in the text, because this has led a lot of people astray. Some people, most of them are scholars, uh, (laughs) will come to the conclusion 
that because the stories don't reconcile, there must be some error in the text. Now, if you think about this all as one book, it's the book of Samuel, then odds are that the person that wrote Samuel wrote chapter 31 and then immediately wrote chapter 1 of 2 Samuel. What are the odds between the two he forgot the story he told in 1 Samuel 31? Odds are not great that he's already forgotten what he said, okay? So most of the time, liberal theologians make arguments. They're basing it on the fact that the people that wrote Scripture are idiots. That's, that's basically their underlying premise before they make their conclusions, all right? Let's assume that they actually knew what they were doing when they wrote the story down and that they didn't forget what they had written just one chapter prior. So this, when you have a choice between a character in the story telling a detail of the story and the narrator telling a detail of the story and they don't seem to reconcile, don't trust the character in the story. He's lying, all right? The narrator probably knows what he's talking about. Yes. Now, why would the Amalekite come forward telling David a false story? Does he know David? Has he ever met David? No. It's obvious in the story he's never met David. What would he assume about the one that is to be king? What would he assume about the motives of the one who is to be king under the one who is currently king? Well, obviously, you would think the one who is to be king is not the current son of the king. Understand that? Saul has sons. Who's going to be king? Well, logic would dictate the sons of the king are the ones that are going to be king. But here we have this little rogue guy, scrawny little kid, out in the middle of the desert, who is supposed to be king. And he is not the son of Saul. So one would assume... If the son of Saul, or if Saul and his sons have died, and I'm going to go tell this scrawny little kid out in the wilderness that the king has died, and now he's going to be the king, well, I kind of would love to be a beneficiary of his blessings. <laughs> right? And so maybe I need to figure out something here. So this Amalekite comes to David at Ziklag and he contrives this story and by giving him the news that the king and his son were slain. But the messenger is hoping very obviously to get a reward from David. And so he told him that he killed Saul. I'm the one that did it. I killed him. Hopefully he'll give me a reward. Let's go ahead and read this passage. Uh, for those of you that are new, the words in bold are the blanks. So that may make it easier <laughs> to track them down. Second uh, Samuel, in your verse packet in the back there, Second Samuel 1, 1 to 10. Somebody read that. Many of the people had fallen and were dead, and Saul and his son Jonathan 
are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son, Jonathan, are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called me, and I answered, Here I, here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I had brought them here to my Lord. Now, let's look at the discrepancy that happened just one chapter before in 1 Samuel 31, 5-6. Somebody read those two verses. So there is a clear telling of the narrator, no, Saul died because he committed suicide falling on his own sword. And this guy is coming telling a, a different account. Man, David, you're not going to believe this. Here's how, here's how I know Saul's, di- Saul's dead. Uh, you know, I escaped just barely with my life. And, uh, and the reason is because I saw him and he was, he was pressured, he was tortured on all sides and he... He, he, killed, he fell on his own sword, and, and he, he wasn't quite dead yet, and he asked me to finish him off, and I, I, I took the opportunity to go ahead and kill him because I knew he wasn't going to be able to survive. I wasn't an assassin. I was just, I was helping the king, and, but I put him to death so that you might become king. I, I mean, and I barely just escaped. Here's a couple of friends. <laughs> yeah. Uh, long live the king. Long live the new king, right? So he's bowing down and, and he's doing all this and, and hoping, obviously, very obviously, for a reward. Now, what he doesn't know is that David in 1 Samuel had many opportunities to take Saul's life, but he refused to lift his hand against the Lord's anointed. David had actually learned this lesson through 1 Samuel. We saw that starting in chapter 24 of 1 Samuel, David grows to learn the lesson over time that he is not to lift his hand against the Lord's anointed. And he realizes very early on that's not a good thing. He directs all his men not to do that. He will punish anybody that does lift their hand against the the Lord's anointed. And so because he promised, he vowed, he's very unusual Understand this. In his time period, he is very unusual that the one who is to take the throne would not try to go in and kill the king that's currently on the throne. Very, very unusual. So the Amalekite is probably right to assume that David wants the throne and will do whatever it takes, but he doesn't know that David is a far superior warrior to Saul and that he could have taken his life at any moment if he wanted to, and he refused to do so intentionally refused to do so. And so, because he had refused to lift his hand against the Lord's anointed, and this guy seemed to take every liberty to kill the Lord's anointed, David had him put to death. Oh, that's terrible, David says. Oh, man, I cannot believe Saul and Jonathan are dead and you killed them. Somebody take this guy out back and shoot him. (laughs) <laughs> you can imagine how the story just turns for this man as he's going, wait, what? What are you talking about? Kill me? 
I'm the one that killed the king. Yeah, exactly. You're the one that killed the king. See you later, right? Uh, take him out back and, and kill him. Um, yeah, the irony that's happening here, yeah, the irony that's happening here in the story is not only does the Amalekite not know that David doesn't want to lift his hand against Saul, but that David has just gone to the Amalekites and killed a bunch of them in chapter 31 of 1 Samuel. So he's put the Amalekites to flight. He's killed them all. He's burned an entire village of Amalekites and comes back. So the story opens with David killing the Amalekites and closes that little paragraph with David killing another Amalekite, finishing them off, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there, there's, you, you know, it's, 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 I think this, the whole story, First and Second Samuel, brings out so many interesting components because David, by all accounts, is doing what, is, what the Lord has required of him. He's continually seeking after the Lord's will in, in any and every situation. And when he doesn't, he is, he is rebuffed by the Lord and he bows his knee and repents of sin that's in his heart and and it's obvious that his desire is to follow after the Lord in any and every way. And yet Saul is on the throne, and he is on the throne for so long, 10, 12 years after David is anointed, Saul is on the throne continually refusing to do what the Lord has asked him to do. And you would think at some point, surely the Lord's justice is going to come down on Saul. Well, it eventually does. But it takes 11 or 12 years for that to actually come about. How many times do you think David sat there and thought, when? How long is it going to take? And it seems as though for the Lord, a thousand years is as a day, and a day is a thousand years. (laughs) He's not in any hurry. Uh, As I've heard it said, God is never early, or not, God is never late, but he misses a lot of opportunities to be early. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, he, he just seems to take his time, and it just doesn't seem to play out always in the timing that we think it should be. And, and so it's, it's taken all this time for this disobedient king who just has complete disregard for the Lord's will to finally be served his justice. And yet, what we also see at the same time, who dies with Saul? Jonathan. Jonathan is. Yeah, Jonathan walked a fine line, a line, a line that is, and in the text, the author is speaks very highly of Jonathan. Jonathan gave everything he had to David, and yet, in the process of giving everything he had, he didn't disrespect his father either. How do you walk that fine a line? Your dad hates David, yet you continue to serve your father in faithfulness and honor your father as the, as the law commands, and yet also submit to the Lord's anointed, David. I mean, talk about a narrow tightrope that Jonathan walks, and yet at the end of 1 Samuel Jonathan gets just one little line. Jonathan died too. 
Yeah, David's going to repay him in the poem that he's about to sing or write for Jonathan, for Jonathan and Saul, actually. And, uh, and you're going to see some, some interesting things in it, I think. But <clears throat> let's read um, 2 Samuel 1, 11 to 16 to see how this plays out. Somebody read that. said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an, an Amalekite. David said to him, how is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your head, for your own mouth is testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. So you, you kind of wonder, <clears throat> how is it that David, who wasn't in the, in the war, in the battle, how is it that he knows this Amalekite is, uh, is, is giving him a, a fudgy story, or he's kind of being, uh, yeah, he, yeah, how does he know he's lying? Um, and there, there's, <clears throat> this is speculation a little bit anyway, but it probably with a little bit of good information at least, that of war at the time, it's, it's unlikely that Saul would have been so isolated. Saul, who is the king, would have been so isolated right in the middle of the battle uh, that he would have been without his armor bearer, without someone that's appointed to look after him. So the armor bearer is there not only as uh, someone to carry the armor into the, into the field of battle, to strap the armor on the king, to, but he's also there to fight with the king and to basically watch his back and to ensure in any way that he can that he not die. Should there be some attacker come from behind, the armor bearer steps in between the king. It, it, basically, he's a secret service, all right, in, in a manner of speaking. He's a secret service. And so um, uh, the, maybe the not-so-secret service, <laughs> as, as it were. But he, he's, he's there to protect the king, and so it's unlikely that Saul would ever be in a moment in battle where he is completely away from all of, his, all of the people that are, are there to kind of watch his back. Uh, Jonathan among them, you know. Uh, so, so it's probably that David is sniffing out some indiscretions or discrepancies in the, in the story. And um, not least of which does he know that for no reason should the Amalekite ever strike the... the Lord's anointed, and so for that reason alone, he should die. Now, the Amalekite, obviously, as we've said, assumes that David is driven by the same passion for power, and that uh, that David has no scruples about seizing the kingship from Saul, and so he seeks to go about getting this um, this reward from him. But you notice in the passage that we read that David uh, weeps. For Saul, he, he immediately, so, so he's told that uh, this, this happened. David tears his clothes in verse 11. He mourns and weeps in verse 12. And then David stops for a minute. And we don't know if the weeping in the morning chronologically came after and the, the, guys, the, the person who wrote Second Samuel is telling us the story and showing us how this came about in a different way or whatever. But David stops his mourning and he looks at the man 
and he says, wait a minute, where did you come from? He answered, I'm a sojourner, I'm an Amalekite. How is it that you weren't afraid to put your hand against the Lord's anointed? David's assumption would be that you should at least fear the Lord who has put this man on the throne. How is it that you don't do that? Uh, you have to know at the, that point the Amalekite realized this is not going to end well for me. Um, so David puts him to death. Now David writes this lament for Saul and Jonathan that takes 2 Samuel 17, 1, 17 to 27. And the poem, this will not appear in the text. Okay, so let's, let's read it first. Uh, 2 Samuel uh, 1, 17 to 27. Somebody read that. Well, I can read it. Let me just read it. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said, it should, it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. He said, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. For the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war. Now, this poem, this lament that David takes up is likely entitled The Bow. How do we know that? Well, you wouldn't know it reading the ESV. So in verse 18, it says, And he said, It should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. Um, that it in the actual text is the bow. The bow should be taught to the people of Judah. Now, the only thing that we can take from the text there is that what David meant is that the title of this lament, should the bow, should be taught. And it's written down in the book of Jashar. Um, what is the book of Jashar? I know you're probably asking. I don't know. Um, oh, so it's not. Nope, we ain't got it. So uh, unless, 
Unless, yeah. J Jashar obviously had it and took it with him to the grave. And so, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So, someone in Qumran in some cave somewhere is going to find it one day and they will go, you know, oh, it's the book of Jashar. Okay. Um, so, but he, what it does is it, it laments the tragedy for Israel to lose their king. A couple of things that you need to notice there is that at the very end, who does he call out specifically the last few verses? Jonathan. Uh, and what are, the people, uh, what are the people of Judah to do with this lament? Memorize it. This is a catechism for them. Why? Why is this a catechism for them? Why is this a, 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 a teaching, a learning that they're to memorize that every person in Judah is to hear and remember? Um, we, uh, as a proud Texan, we, have a, uh, uh, we had a, a battle that you may have heard of. I don't know if you've heard of it or not, the Alamo. A lot of people yes. outside of Texas think we won the Battle of the Alamo, and we didn't. Uh, and so a lot of people that visit Texas will say, remember the Alamo, and it's a sore subject for a lot of Texans. Uh, remember the Alamo was a defeat, and remember the Alamo was a phrase that was used for the following battle to remember the massacre that took place at the Alamo. Is to inspire as you go to war. Uh, there's, a, there's a place in Israel called Masada, which is a, basically a plateau up on a hill. And about 72 to 73, about 900 or so Jews encamped there on Masada to resist the Roman army. And the resistance of the Jews had dwindled down to this small little group sitting on top of Masada. And the Romans forever kind of sat down there for like a year thinking, like, how are we going to get up there? And so then they just started building. They started building a little ramp. <laughs> it took them a little while, but they built a little ramp up there. And they march up to Masada on top of Masada, and they get up there to conquer these Jews, and they find there are no Jews to conquer. They've all committed suicide. Actually, they had a person kill all the rest of them and only one person committed suicide, but, but essentially that's what they did. And to this day, as my understanding, the Israeli army swears their oath on top of Masada, saying never again will Masada happen. We were on Masada, and uh, we, we're, we're standing there touring the place, and two Israeli jets come flying past Masada. I mean, felt like you could just reach out and touch them. You, you couldn't, but it felt like you could. And they just shook you down to the bones as they just, you know, blaze over towards Jordan. And then in about 30 minutes, they turned, come roaring back. And it was just, it was absolutely the coolest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> F-16 just buzzing by Masada, just incredible as a kind of a, a picture. And, and we asked, you know, what, what are they doing and he said, sometimes they're going to take care of something that's happening in Jordan that we'll never hear about. And other times, they just fly past Masada as a reminder. Uh, this is never going to happen again. Um, so there are these uh, laments, these tragedies that take place in society, in a, in, a, in a civilization that are taken up as a stone of remembrance for that group. That this will never happen again. Saul is dead because of disobedience. King disobeying the Lord who had put him on the throne. And not only did he disobey, but his body was defiled by pagans. Killed, killed by an Amalekite. 
They have no respect for the king on the throne. David forces all the land of Judah, whose he is now king over, to be sure that they remember this will never happen again. Ever. No one is to touch the Lord's anointed. Uh, all right, questions on that part of it? Go ahead, James. Never give up. Yeah. Yeah. David in his in this lament is calling for the hills of Mount Gilboa to never receive rain again. To never receive crops because the king died on the battlefield there. There was no one there to protect him. Um, David, even in the midst of Saul's torture over him. He's clear to, he's making clear to everyone. Let it be known. If there was any animosity between us, it was only one direction. It wasn't felt by me. Saul may have hated me. I didn't hate him. Especially not Jonathan. Now, so then King David-ish takes the throne. Um, uh, So David makes no move. Uh, before he seeks the direction from Yahweh. Remember, David is in Ziklag, which is in Philistine territory, and he assumes, rightly, the Lord does not want him to stay there, but does not exactly know if that is the Lord's direction. So he seeks out, where does he need to go? He seeks direction from Yahweh, and the Lord authorizes David to leave Ziklag and head for Hebron of Judah in particular. And the fact that David brings not only his wife, but anybody that he has with him, his men, their families, all of the camp of Ziklag, he picks it up and he moves to Hebron at the Lord's discretion, is basically making clear that David is is breaking completely away from the Philistines. He is done completely with the Philistines. Now, so you've got uh, Hebron of, of Judah and the Philistines. Everybody got that? Okay, uh, Hebron, Judah, and the Philistines. Now, I want to show you a map because there's some cities that are mentioned. I want you to know where they are so we can take a look at where they are. Ziklag is where David is. Dead Sea, so this is towards the south, southern part of Israel. We're zoomed in on Israel. Here's the Dead Sea. Here's the River Jordan going straight up, and the Sea of Galilee would be like right up here at the top. All right, Ziklag is right down here where David currently is, and he's been told to head to Hebron. Uh, just some important cities, Jerusalem, which is going to be the capital, but not until chapter 5-ish in Second Samuel, and Gath, which is a main Philistine stronghold that David had a good partnership with while he was here in Ziklag. He's moving to Hebron. Up here in Jabesh Gilead, Bet-Shean, Mount Gilboa. Gilboa is where all of this took place. Jabesh Gilead is going to become important in just a second. And Bet-Shean is the place where uh, Saul and Jonathan's bodies were basically pinned to a wall. Jabesh Gilead is going to be the group that comes over here and takes Saul and Jonathan's body down from the wall, burns them, and actually takes them back and buries them in Jabesh Gilead uh, with the rest of his ancestors. So that's up in the northern portion. Now, what you have to know is that Israel at this moment is not united in any way. Saul was king 
of Israel very loosely. There were a lot of people that didn't really see themselves under Saul's reign, and, and it was more, there was a lot of independent states inside Israel. Shannon. Yep, yep, yeah. Saul, it, it, think of it more like a, a rather large army that could come in and defeat people, but where was their territory? Well, technically it was the whole land, but not really. Uh, there were not, not every tribe was fully under Saul's reign. Okay. Not a castle. No, no. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> headquarters would have been right here. Uh, city's escaping me now. Um, she- yeah, Shechem, it's right there in, my, in front of me. She- Shechem would have been the place. Central, I had it right. I had, the, I had the laser right on it so much so that I couldn't even see the name. Uh, there you go. Uh, would have been sort of central lo- locale for them, but uh, not much. Okay, going on here. Not like we're going to see with David when he gets to Jerusalem at all. What's that? Yeah, 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 exactly. So he's up here at Mount Gilboa ready to fight. Bet Sheehan is where, they're, where, they're, where he's killed and tattooed to the wall. Jabesh Gilead, which is the home of his ancestress, are going to come over and take his bones, and they're going to come back and bury them in Jabesh Gilead, and we'll get to that in just a second. David is told Hebron is where you need to go, so Hebron is significant for at least three reasons. The first reason is that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all buried there. That's significant because that ties David in and his kingship in to the patriarchs. Remember what God promised to Abraham. You will be the father of many nations. Remember what he promised to both to Jacob, and then Jacob actually ended up promising in in uh, in uh, his blessing to Joseph's sons and to his own sons. He gets down to Judah and he says, "The scepter will never leave you." Right. So all of the patriarchs are buried there. The promise of God to the patriarchs to establish His kingdom through them ends or begins with David coming back to the land where the patriarchs are buried to do exactly that, which is to establish his kingdom. That's not insignificant. So it sends a signal to the rest of the Israelites. Hey, David's kingdom is where all the patriarchs are buried. That's significant. That's one significant thing. Hebron also stands about 19 miles south by southwest of Jerusalem at some 3,000 feet in elevation. That's significant because especially in that day, high ground winds. In the days of aviation, it becomes less important, but in, in that day, high ground winds. And so it's at 3,000 feet in elevation. Um third reason is that it was one of the most important towns in Judah at that time. It's a large city, which is also uh, really important. So David picks up everybody and marches into Hebron and establishes that as his kingdom. Not only that, but the men of Judah come and anoint David king over the house of Judah, which is really important because as we said, the promise of 
um, to Judah from Jacob. His father is that the scepter will never leave you. Well, now the scepter has come to Judah and all of the Judahites uh, have acknowledged that David is king over them. Now, David's elevation to kingship, though it was administered by men, is fundamentally due to a divine anointing. We're going to see David anointed about 130,000 times in this book. We've already seen him anointed like three or four times. Now we're going to see him anointed several more times. But he, And so though it was administered by men and recognized by men, we know that, and the Bible bears out with all those passages that I listed there, this is due to divine anointing that David is king. It was told that by God that David would be king, and so now he is king. Now, word eventually comes to David that it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead that had given Saul this burial. They had snuck in, they had burned the body, they had taken the bones back to Jabesh-Gilead and buried it with his ancestors and gave him a decent burial. And so, David is going to send them a note of thanks. Thank you, men of Jabesh-Gilead. Blessings upon you for burying Saul and burying uh, Jonathan. However, sometimes you accomplish two, two things at once, right? Sometimes you kill two birds with one stone. David respects Saul as the king. He respects Jonathan, his brother, his blood brother, if you will. But Jabesh Gilead is also in the north. Israel, remember, divided kingdom, He's king over Judah. Israel, though we often refer to Israel as the whole group, Israel is a different group. Israel's the tribes in the north. Jabesh Gilead, as you've seen on the map, is where? In the north. So, because Jabesh Gilead is Israelite rather than Judahite, David realizes that Maybe I can win their favor by sending them a note of thanks and offering a blessing to them. And so David encourages them to be strong and valiant. Tells them it's just basically a, a blessing. And then what does he do at the end of that? He offers them to join him in this mutual defense treaty. See, remember the tribes are split up a little bit and so... The, David appeals to logic. Look, you've heard this before. We are stronger together than we are alone. So there is more that unites us than divides us. You've heard this, this rhetoric as we enter into an election season. David is, play, David is a very savvy diplomat, as we've already seen in the end of 1 Samuel when he lives amongst the Philistines. He's a savvy diplomat. And so he's written to the tribes in the north, listen, we are strong together. We're united. We're brothers. And we can defend each other if we come together. And so he's offering this kind of mutual defense treaty in this passage. Uh, so, Go ahead. So, uh, being part of Israel, there's not a king up, in, uh, king up there? All... There's about to be. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you, you will see in just one second. No, no, no. No, it's a good question. It's the natural question you come to. So who's the king over Israel? Is it, I guess I would think David would be, right? I mean, David's king over Israel. Well, not so much. 
You'll remember this man named Abner, maybe. Abner was the captain of Saul's army. And so he come, Abner comes in and he makes Ishbosheth, who is Saul's surviving son, king over Israel. He takes him real quick and he says, Look, guys, look, Saul's son Ishbosheth is still alive. He's the next in line for the throne. He is king over Israel since his dad, the king, is dead. So Abner takes Ishbosheth and makes him king over Israel. Now you remember Abner. Abner is the one where David, or David and his, his men snuck in to the camp, stole the spear in the water canteen, marched across the ravine, and David wakes them up and he says, uh, Saul, you should kill Abner because he wasn't watching while we snuck in and could have killed you. We stole your spear in water canteen. Now the text doesn't say... Call me crazy, but maybe Abner remembers that. <laughs> you know, it, it's possible that Abner says, no, no, no. Now, Abner's going to turn, but, but for now, he is against David. He makes Ishbosheth king over Israel. And there is no other way to see this except that, there it is, the promotion of Ishbosheth as king was not only a continuation of hostility of Saul towards David through the commander of his army, but also an open act of rebellion against the Lord. So here we have, yet again, even as David takes the throne, not everything's easy now. Just because you've made it doesn't make the road easy. David now has the task of taking all of Israel and uniting them. But the only thing that is going to unite them is a fear of the Lord. That's it. So that's true of anybody. That's true of churches even today. You cannot unite a church unless there is a mutual fear of the Lord. Period. It will not happen. Millie. Uh, it is by this point. Okay. We just don't, we're not told when it becomes public knowledge. It, so the for author of Samuel kind of leads you to believe that it's sort of just grown over time, that people have come to know David is next in line to the throne. And to the point at the end of 1 Samuel, Saul actually tells Jonathan he knows David has been anointed. Saul is told personally at the very end when he consults the medium and she conjures up the spirit of Samuel, Samuel through the medium tells him David is going to take the throne. Saul seems to have already known this beforehand because he tells Jonathan that. So it became apparent over time throughout 1 Samuel that, yeah, everybody does now know David is next in line. So what they're doing is a rebellion. They, they realize that, and they're saying, no, we're rejecting the Lord's authority. Um, but the only way that's going to come, the, the union is going to come about is not by logic. Nobody's going, yeah, we are better together than we are alone. 
And that makes a lot of sense. Let's all come together and let's unite. No one's doing that. It's only by fear of the Lord that everybody's going to actually in the end be united. That's true even throughout Jewish history as kings are determined, their success is determined by whether or not they tore down the high places, the places of pagan worship. If you're not united under the Lord, it's all for naught. Who cares? It doesn't matter. Yeah. Questions? Are y'all amazed at Jonathan? Yeah. I just, I, I don't know how. How do you walk a tightrope of obedience? Love, uh, love you. Just... Yep, yep. How does, a divorce, how does a child of divorce walk in obedience to both parents? How does a person who works in a job obey two bosses that don't agree? How does a, I mean, how does a, person, how does a person obey the Lord, fear the Lord, and yet also submit to a pagan king or ruler or, or boss or n- name it, anybody that's appointed in authority over you? How do you walk that tightrope between, you know, Christians are constantly put in this dilemma. But let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a time to gather together under your word. And we we know that unless we come together in fear and submission to you, we as individuals will never be united. We pray, Lord, that you would give us that kind of unity. That out of mutual fear of you, we would find common cause with one another. We would love one another. We know your word tells us this is how people will know that we are your disciples, that we love one another. And we know that kind of love only comes out of fear. We see David as an example of that in this passage. But we see Jesus even more so as an example of that, as he walks even to the cross, obeying you to the end. May we have that kind of obedience and submission to you. May we have that kind of humility and meekness. In Jesus' name, amen.